Hey, this is Brother Austin McCormick, and you're listening to the Context is Key podcast. I'm speaking to you from my home church, actually, and I'm very blessed and privileged to get to do so in Vista Baptist Church in Vista, Missouri. This is the seventh episode of the Context is Key podcast, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Pastor Jimmy Johnson. So welcome, Brother Jimmy, to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I was just talking to Brother Jimmy before we started recording the podcast about how I don't really know much about him, but we've uh, had a lot of mutual friends, and obviously he's a pastor at my home church now, and I'm uh, very grateful for what he's already done with this church and how this church has taken to him, and I wanted to get Mm -hmm. to know him a little bit deeper, so I have a set of questions for him, and I'm going to ask him these questions, and this will give me an opportunity to get to know him. So the first question I want to ask you, Brother Jimmy, is uh, about your salvation testimony. Can you give me that? I can give you a brief snippet of it. Um, Grew up in a non-Christian family. My dad professed to be an atheist. My mom grew up in the church but never really really took us anywhere. Um, But my childhood was still fairly, fairly good, fairly easy. My dad was generally a moral man, and so was my mother, and we had a tight family up front, but things went downhill. My dad quit his job randomly, just started sleeping on the couch um, on his, not because my mom had sent him out there, but just because, and the marriage started to fall apart. He became verbally abusive to both my older sisters who How weren't. How old were you when this was happening? Sorry to interrupt. It probably began when I was around five or six. Okay. Um, and my sisters who are my half sisters, they, they aren't his children, but they're 8 and 11 years older than me, so he started being verbally abusive to them, verbally abusive to my mom, having explosive temper tantrums, just to the point where my mom thought it was her fault and even feared coming home just because she didn't want him to be set off. But with three younger kids, he got set off anyways. But come about nine, if we fast forward a little bit, my, my parents got a divorce. My dad moved about three three blocks down the road. He still wanted to be close. Um, and my mom got custody, but shared, I shared time. I'd go over to my dad's every other holiday or every other weekend and I'd still be there. And the verbal abuse that was upon my older sisters and, and, and my mother transferred to me. I mean, because I was the only one there. Um, he never hit me or anything like that, but I was just never quite good enough for him. I wasn't smart enough. I, I'm not a big guy, as you can tell. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, I was athletic, but I was never the greatest at anything. And, and my dad was never really great at any sports either, but he, he was hoping I would be. Yeah. And I wasn't. Uh, and I was smaller than him and didn't do as much as him even. And so he would criticize me often. I'd bring my paper as a young boy, and he'd just tell me how worthless and bad I was at writing and wow. stuff like that and how dumb I was. And that went on, and eventually I just became cold to it. I mean, it, in order to endure that type of verbal abuse, especially from your dad, someone... My dad's a smart man, an intelligent man. Um, it wore on me to the point where I just became hardened cold. I, I began to smile a lot less. I, I, and my mother would complain about that, and I even vowed to smile even less because my mother was complaining about it. I, I was being a rebellious youth. And eventually, I started to disrespect my mother in the same way that my 
dad did. Um, and this, this did happen pretty rapidly after the divorce, but not immediately. But by the time I was a teenager, I was very easily one of the most disrespectful teens when it came to my mother. Um, didn't get in trouble at school, still did well. Did sports, wrestled because that was one of the only sports where you could throw people and not get in <laughs> trouble. And it was a way to exercise um, my anger. That I, that I had with my life and with my father. and However, when I lost, it was a tragedy. I felt like a total failure. I, I believe at times I said I wanted to die, which is ridiculous to think about now. It was right. just wrestling. But when I'd lost, I'd rip headgear, I'd punch walls, I'd just do all kinds of outrageous things. And this went all the way until my sophomore year, and I... Uh, sophomore year of high school, that is, and I was playing Call of Duty on Xbox Live, and one of my buddies was a PK, and he invited his youth pastor to come and play the online game. <laughs> and his youth pastor um, talked to me, stroke up, struck up a conversation. He was probably about 28 or so at the time. He, he was a younger younger man, and he was one of the first adults other than, like, my grandpa or something like that, but first adult Christian males that actually even took an interest in me whatsoever. By this time, though, my mother was going to church, and as well as all my, my sisters were and things like that, and I'd go when I was with them, but I wanted to be like my dad and just be a church rebel and not go. Right. I wouldn't sing or anything like that. Right. Um, but he invited me to the Baptist the Southern Baptist Church that was in town invited me to a lock-in, and I didn't go. And eventually, I was taken there by a buddy who had been going there, um, who is now a professed Satanist, but he dragged me there. I was at his house, wow. and he was going, so I had, I had to go too, and I just kept going after that. He preached expositionally, no flair. He was not he was basically proud that he didn't make things fun. <laughs> but for some reason, I, I enjoyed that. And there were other guys that were about my age and who I was friends with. So I just kept going and going and going. And then I went to a youth retreat and he was preaching again. I just realized, man, I believe all the stuff he's saying. Not very emotional, but I really did believe it. And I really began to care about it. And he started meeting regularly with me, inviting me to go on trips with him and stuff like that. And, and my dad, who was not a Christian, thought it was weird or something, just because right. what kind of guy does that? Right. And, but he was discipling me in that process, and eventually he invited me to go to the children's camp and be a, a counselor in training, and I got to do that for a summer, and that would have been going into my senior year, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I wanted to be an architect, but that's because they made money and I was okay at it. Yeah. Um, but when we were at that camp and ministering to children who had been abused far greater than myself, um, I at that point thought that this is something that I want to do with the rest of my life. So now we're getting into the call to ministry, which you are going to ask, I right. believe, next. So we'll go and get into that. Okay. Um, so at that point, I, uh, I thought that that might be something that I want to do, um, be a youth pastor or be some sort of pastor of some sort. I didn't really know about calling or anything like that, but it was something that I thought was admirable 
and, and, and I wanted to do it. So he gave me an opportunity to preach when we got back. Um, I preached Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and it did not go well at all. <laughs> uh, I, he had been at a, retreat, or at a conference and came back, and he was letting me preach because he didn't have time to prepare anything, but he was there, thankfully. And, and I preached, and I read the passage, and I may have said two or three comments, and then I was done. And it was a How long do you think your first ser- This is your first sermon, right? Yes, How my first sermon. He says, he says it was about three and a half minutes, okay. but I think it was five or six. Okay. But every time he tells the story, it gets slightly shorter. <laughs> shorter. But even though I was aware of how bad I did, he came up, stood beside me, didn't make me sit down, and he, he added things to it and, and spurred on conversation. And it actually ended up being a good experience for me rather than like, he didn't say, wow, you suck, this is not for you. Right. And so, I mean, come back from that, I'm like, man, maybe I'm not called to do this. But he's like, just, just wait, and, and I'll give you some more opportunities to teach. And I started teaching in Sunday school and started to get better. And, and I didn't preach after that for a while. Um, and he helped me find a Bible college to go to. And he thought I was called, and he thought I had the gifts, and I had the moral character, and that was required. And and the mind to do and study and things like that. So I went to MOBAP and studied for a year, and then he let me preach again, and it went much better the next time. It, it was after studying and learning, and I felt like I was behind all those guys at ministry school because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I read books voraciously. I, I read the Bible voraciously. I mean, probably too fast, but I was just soaking in everything that I could, good or bad, right. and and that can either make you proud or really humble. It made me more proud at first, and then, and then I actually had to talk to people that didn't believe the same thing as me, like Mormons and things like that. And right. that gave me a strike of humility that I still didn't really know what anything for that matter. But as time went on, my call got confirmed. God sent other men into my life to mentor me. One is a pastor in Fenton, Missouri named Dr. Griever. He was the the hermeneutics and, and preaching professor at MOBAP, or Missouri Baptist University, for those that don't know the short term. Um, and he was also the pastor of the church that I became a member of while I was in college. So I got to preach on Wednesday nights there, and he would critique me lovingly, and he said, this is something that you are really called to do. And, and I was still shaky, and opportunities hadn't arisen as graduation, and I was getting married, and things like that came up. But I just stuck with it, prayed about it, took whatever opportunities I could to preach or teach, and eventually we were in Mississippi, and I was working at a Christian college as a resident director of a, got, of a co-ed apartment complex um, and going to seminary down the road at RTS, and eventually a church called me to come and preach two Sundays, and I went the first one, and they're like, would you be interested in being after preaching, they're like, would you come here and pastor? I'm like, well, I, I'd have to think about that and pray about it. Yeah. And they said, well, how about this? You come again, bring your wife so we can meet her. And we did. We went the next week, and they're like, okay, we would like to call you to preach. We need to have another service to do that and get people to vote. So 
I went to Indonesia on a mission trip with my wife, and when we got back, that week we got back, I preached a sermon for you to call, voted unanimously in. Wow. And nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I'm two for two, though. That's I'm good. two for two, though. I, I don't know if I should be proud or proud of that or people just are really nice and lying. <laughs> I, I don't know. But I got called to that church, served there a year, and eventually ended up here at Vista Baptist Church. And, and I left that church on good terms. I was just back there a couple of months ago to preach their harvest day and homecoming service. So. Wow. So left there on good terms and have been enjoying my time here and not good deal. and trying to be as low key as I can, but my personality doesn't <laughs> allow that sometimes. Man, that's awesome. Well, I definitely already know more about you now. Yeah. Uh, throughout your testimony, I was curious to a uh, time of conversion. I, I the time of conversion would have been at that camp. Okay. It would have been when I was. I would have been sixteen. When, when I was converted, and I don't have the exact moment. I might have been slightly converted before. I might have been converted prior to that, but the realization of, like, I believe these things. Right. Um, because as you study church history and even in the Bible, some conversions look different than others. Some you have that big aha moment, right. like, holy cow. Right. And other ones, like Augustine, it, it took time, and eventually there was that time where he, he finally turned. Mine was more like the Augustine-like conversion that, right. was, that was slow and tedious and painful and <laughs> And then sanctification after that was slow, tedious, and painful, too. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, uh, man, you hit on a lot of my questions before I even had to well, ask them. Well, that's what you get for sending them to me <laughs> beforehand. I, uh, let's hit on educational experiences a little bit. You were mentioning mm-hmm. RTS. What did you yeah. study at RTS? Actually, let's go back to MOBAP. Okay. What did, you, what did you major in at MOBAP? At MOBAP, I got my bachelor's in biblical languages. Okay and mostly Greek, but a little bit of Hebrew. And then the first half of my seminary experience was at Reformed Theological Seminary, where I was working on an MDiv there. And I took a lot of the core classes that are required for MDiv, as well as Hebrew there. And they have one of the best Hebrew professors in the entire country. Miles Van Pelt is his name. And he was awesome, and I hated Hebrew in undergraduate, but he made me like it, and now I like it better than Greek. Hmm. Um, but there I was studying more of a counseling emphasis, and, and they had a counseling center there, and I just wanted... I was looking for... I'm the type of person where I, I know where my... I, where, when I learn where my weaknesses are, I want to better them okay. as much as I can. So I knew that counseling and empathy that's required to counseling was something that was a weaker point for me, so I wanted to improve there. So that's what I, I did. And then when we moved out and took the, when I became pastor of that church in Mississippi, it was an hour and 15 minutes from RTS. So I, I stayed at RTS one more semester, but then I transferred to Southern. And online. yep, Southern Online. And I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm almost done, but I'm going very slow to, to finish it out just with the demands of pastoral ministry, I'm just taking my time. Right. I probably have, if I were full-time, one year left, but I'm not full-time, so <laughs> it'll probably be two years or so before I'm done. And your major at Southern? It's just the general Christian ministry one, but most of my electives are either in systematic theology or church history. And, and what's, your, what's your favorite between? I... 
I think both of them are so related, it's hard to distinguish right. between the two. I like church history just because I'm a history buff. My dad was always a history buff, and I think that kind of got passed on to me. But I, I also just love systematic theology and to think about deeper things. But I think that you have, in order to be a good systematic theologian, you have to have a good wrap around church history and the development of doctrine because theology is a human endeavor and humans have been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And, and theology didn't begin when I came out of the womb. So I, <laughs> I, have, I have to study it and, and study other people who have gone before me, whether they're wrong or right. I think you've answered all my questions except for this last one. And uh, I sent Brother Jimmy this uh, list of questions I had beforehand, as he already mentioned. But uh, I asked him really to break down the context of Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. And I was telling him before I got here that Many times, if you didn't catch on yet in the podcast, whenever I'm doing contextual observances and uh, looking at historical context mm-hmm. or other types of context, I'm doing it because I've heard people take this verse out of context, and I'm not trying to be prideful or boastful, but I really think it's important to understand certain verses, and if anybody is listening to these podcasts, hopefully it's a resource that you can use to better understand what God is speaking through His Word, so... Uh, I'm just going to pass this over to Brother Jimmy and ask him to break this down, Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. Well, let's go ahead, since this is context, is key, read the context. Go ahead. We'll go to up to Matthew. Let me find where we're at. So Matthew 19, 16, and we'll, we'll read this whole section in Matthew's account. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I said to you, In the world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
So there's the context <laughs> of it. And verse 24 is the, and again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Austin, you had shared how generally you heard when you do these podcasts, you pick your passages based on people taking a passage out of context. you care to explain how this passage was taken out of context? Oh, well, I've heard this passage taken out of context a lot in, uh, in times where people will uh, try to make a point about how they cannot get to heaven unless they volitionally do something. If that makes if that makes sense to you if if, yeah. if the creature will do something to enable salvation to begin so without any operation outside of them um, they are able to Correct. turn or they must be able to turn to Christ and and repent without any assistance whatsoever yeah, and I which, really think that's playing a lot reading a lot into the text that's not there. yeah a lot of eisegesis instead of Exegesis. So, I mean, the context is you have the rich young ruler, as, as he is often called, and, and he's inquiring of Jesus how he might enter into eternal life. And, and Jesus tells him basically to obey the second table of the law. Um, he does leave one out, but that's not the passage we're studying, or the verse we're studying, so we won't get too much into that. And then basically tells the man that if he is to enter life or have treasure in heaven, he must follow Jesus selling all his possessions and the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions and and I think really verses 23 and then verse 26 really answer what this verse 24 is actually meant to say because since verse 24's first word is again it's pointing back to something he previously said um, so he says in verse 23 truly I say to you only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So that is the subject that Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's saying that it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, there may have been some thought in that first century Christianity, as there is some thought that someone's material wealth, someone's status and culture, someone's um, own personal ability to do things um, makes them a great candidate for the kingdom of heaven. That's what man tends to think. And as Jesus says elsewhere, thanking God, he thanks God that God has given him the least of these and not the great in the world. So oftentimes God's conventions are not ours. But verse 24, he's drawing on an analogy or he's making an analogy. He's, he's comparing the difficulty of a rich person going into the kingdom of God with a camel going through the eye of a needle. Um, the eye of a needle being very, very small as they are <laughs> nowadays, a camel being the largest animal known to people at this time, as well as it had, they have humps. So, I mean, even <laughs> to go, it would have made it more cumbersome. It, by all conventional human wisdom, that would have not been possible. Most of us can think of a needle, even a modern day one, and we can, most of us know what a camel looks like, and it's absolutely absurd to assume that a camel can pass through. And that's how difficult it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God, which kind of goes directly against what the people who you have heard use this passage out of context are saying. They're saying there is a great impossibility, if left to themselves, for a rich person to enter 
the kingdom of God, which is why the disciples asked the question in verse 25. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were, who then can be saved? So the disciples were asking who can be saved because of what Jesus said about the camel and the needle. And Jesus answered, and this is the key passage, it says, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Meaning that with God, rich or poor people can be saved because ultimately entering the kingdom of God is not a work that is initiated by man, but is a work of God upon individuals, upon individual men and women. So even as John Gill said, I'll I'll go ahead and quote him. It says, for as he, talking about God, could by his almighty power, if he would reduce a camel to so small a size as to be able to go through the eye of a needle, which with men is an impossible thing, so by God's mighty power of his grace, he can work upon a rich man's heart in such a manner as to take his affections from his worldly substance and cause him to drop his trust and confidence in it. He can so influence and dispose his mind as to distribute his riches carefully or cheerfully among the poor and largely and liberally supply their wants and even part with all. When necessity requires it, he can change his heart and cause the desires of his soul to be after true riches of grace and glory. So John Gill obviously gets the context of this passage, that this passage in no way can support the idea that a man can, by himself, pull up his bootstraps and march into God's kingdom, that God actually has to do an operative work upon that individual's heart, drawing him to salvation, which we can think of Ezekiel 37, where, it, where it's said that um, God has to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. We can go to John 1, as well as John 3.16, where it talks about how a man is born again. It is by the Spirit, not by flesh, not by will, not by blood, um, but the Spirit that causes the new birth. And, and as I said, it would be great for you to do a podcast on John 3, 16, 17, 18, and 19, because I think that that one is another passage that is often cited offhandedly to support things that aren't, yes, out of its context, um, without 17 and 18, which make it make sense, as well as the entire first half of John 3, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. But This passage at its root, again, just supports the idea that in order to do what God requires of us, in order for us to believe in Jesus and follow him, God must do a saving work. Because as Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, but by God. Essentially is what it says. I forget what the rest of it says there. But um, anyways, I, I, that's all I've got for this one. Well, I think you've completely answered my question for that one. And then 
as I look at my list, you've completely question or answered all my questions, and so I think that's a really, really good uh, contextual observance, a lot of good historical context, a lot of good contemporary application. It's That's a good podcast, and Brother Jimmy, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today on the Context Key podcast. Hopefully, I can look forward to getting you again on the, the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the Context is Key podcast. For more information regarding the Context is Key podcast, feel free to follow me on Twitter at BroAustin7. You can also follow me on Instagram at McCormick and follow with our Facebook page at Context is Key podcast. I would like to encourage you also to stay up with some of Brother Jimmy's sermons and podcasts. Brother Jimmy is the host of the Made New podcast. You can find that on Podbean. You can also keep up with Brother Jimmy's sermons via www.vistabaptistchurch.com. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us on our podcast, and don't forget, context is key.